Well, amen. You know, often as I sit and will stand and worship with us and sing and celebrate, I'm reminded of the fact that in heaven there will be singing. But I find no place in Scripture where there will be preaching. And so since I will be obsolete then, I've got to get my time in now. Now, thank you for singing. Thank you for worship. God inhabits the praises of his people. So we want him to be here. And if we don't cry out and we don't sing out, what will happen? The rocks will do it for us. And we don't need no rock doing our job. So. Well, this morning I want to preach a, a, title, a sermon entitled, God is for you. A couple years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy and uh, he and I were seeing things differently. Uh, we didn't match eye to eye. Uh, he had a different uh, perspective and a different uh, opinion. And I made the statement that God is for you. And he wanted to argue that point. You know, his point was we need to be for God, but God is not for us. And um, I beg to differ because Paul states it, that God is for us. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, but we're going to do a Bible drill type sermon. If you like Bible drill, if you remember the days when you would stand and present your sword and you had to, you know, and the caller would call out and you would find it. Uh, this is going to be one of those sermons. We're going to walk through eight chapters of the book of Romans. And so uh, if you like Bible drill, you'll like this. If you don't like Bible drill, well, uh, I'm sorry. It's only going to last about an uh, hour and a half. So, uh, uh, you know, you'll survive. But God is for you. Uh, if you don't hear anything else, uh, you've got to walk out of here understanding that Scripture teaches, uh, not only emphatically as Paul states it in Romans 8, but throughout the whole New Testament, God is for you. God is for you. He is for you. Now, we Christians, we talk a lot about the gospel. It's one of our big words. It's one of our buzzwords. It's kind of a catchphrase for us. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We throw the gospel around a lot. Sometimes we're aware of what we're saying when we use the word gospel. Sometimes we're not so aware of what we're saying when we use the word gospel. But we, we tend to use it, and we should. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. Now, in Paul's day, when he when when in Paul's day, the word gospel was not a spiritual word. It was not a religious word. It was not a church word. It was a normal word. The people of Paul's day would use the word gospel just in everyday, regular conversations about life. If you said the stock market is up, that's really good news. You were saying something that was gospel. If you said illegal drug use was down, that's really good news. So you were saying something that was gospel. Now, the Christian gospel has a little bit of a different uh, emphatic connotation to it. The Christian gospel is the good news of salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about the good news of Jesus. We're talking about the good news of our free gift of salvation. Now the thing about good news, it's only good when you consider it side by side with the bad. What makes good news good is that on the other side of the coin, there is bad news that is bad. If there wasn't bad news, it would be mediocre news. But because there is bad news, it makes the good news really, really good. 
And see, the, the good news, or see, the bad news for, Christ, for us as Christians is we were all born sinners. Okay, that's bad news. We were all born separated from a holy God. That's bad news. We were all born deserving of an eternal time of punishment. That is really bad news. But there's good news. And because the bad news is so bad, it makes the good news that much better. It's really good news. And the good news is sinful people can be made right with a holy God and returned returned to a right relationship with this holy God. And the, the process that makes us right with God and returns us to a right relationship with God is through the grace of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. Being returned to a right relationship with God is not something we do. It's not something we earn. It's simply something we receive by faith as we believe in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We didn't climb some mountain. We didn't discover some great theory. We didn't accomplish some great task. We simply sat there as paupers and received a free gift. And that free gift was the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned for us when he died in our place on a cross and rose on the third day from the grave. And then God the Father credited us with what he had done. That's good news. I mean, if I walked up today and said, hey, you know what? Here's $57 million. You'd say, thank you. That's good news. What I just told you is so much better than $57 million. Because in spite of the fact that it's a large sum of money, it's going to rust. Or you're going to die before you have a chance to spend it all. And what I just told you will never, ever fade. It will never, ever rust. It will never, ever wear out. You will never have, you will never lose the opportunity to enjoy it. Now, the gospel is the foundational and central message of Christianity. And nowhere do we find this more completely uh, discussed than in the book of Romans. And Paul goes to the book of Romans and explains in great detail both the bad news of sin and the good news of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to take a moment and look at the bad news, and then we're going to take about an hour and look at the good news. See, y'all keep laughing every time I mention time, and I don't know why. So let me show you the bad news. And I'm glad you're sitting down because it's really bad. So I want you to look in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. All right, I'm going to walk you through those, those scriptures, and so you can... You can be prepared and you can jump and run with me. Um, and then when we, um, when we get to the good news, we'll go a little slower. But Romans 1.18, it reads like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So right off the bat, in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, Paul begins talking about the sinfulness of mankind and and the wrath of God. See, God hates sin. We lose sight of that. We, we, We lose sight of the fact that God hates sin. But God hates sin with a passion. In fact, God hates sin so much, he took his little boy, nailed him to a tree, and poured his wrath out on it. God hates sin. And that's really, really 
bad news. Now, in chapter 1, verse 24, it reads, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. And in verse 26, it reads, For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, it says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And basically what Paul is saying is, God, knowing humankind, set up boundaries to keep us from wandering into lifestyles that were just too devastating that we couldn't survive. But because of the hardness of our hearts and our desire, deep desire to sin in spite of God's perfect boundaries, God finally just gets fed up and he turns us loose and he lets us dive into the deep end of debauchery and we reap the consequences of our actions. And that's really bad news for God to turn us loose. It's really bad for God to say, I, I wash my hands of you. Go do whatever you want. You're going to suffer unbelievably and I'm not going to help you out. I am taking away the net that would catch you and save you before you got into a mess. I'm going to turn you loose. That is really, really bad news. And Paul keeps going. Verse 23, chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. All have sinned. Nobody's exonerated. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. That's me. That's you. Romans 6, 23. The wages, the payment, the result, the consequence of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. You and I have sinned. We are sinners and therefore we sin. And because we have sinned, we earned death. Now the word, the Greek word there, here's your Greek lesson for the day. The Greek word there is the Greek word thanatos. Thanatos. It just kind of rolls off your tongue. Thanatos. And all it simply means is it's referring to a separation. It can be a physical separation, a cleaving away, or it can be a spiritual separation. And if the way Paul uses it here, it's a spiritual separation. Because of our sin, we are spiritually separated from God. And in our spiritual separation from God, we are spiritually dead. That's why Ephesians says that we were dead in our sins, not that we were bad in our sins. So we have the concept that we're bad in our sins, but that's not the case. We were dead in our sins. Salvation doesn't make bad people good. Salvation makes dead people alive. Well, the fact that we're separated from God is really, really bad news. Now, let's look at one more, and then we're going to change gears. Chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the law and the commandments, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Really bad news. Bad, bad, bad news. So we have seven chapters there. And I just, you know, I skimmed through it. I, I just give you the highlights. But seven chapters of theologically bad news. But then Paul gets to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we turn a corner. And in chapter 8, Paul dives into the good news of Jesus Christ. And we, there, are, there is bad news. And it's bad, bad news. But there is good news, and it's good, good news. In fact, it's great news. It's the best news. It's eternal news. It's the blessed news of what Jesus Christ has done for us and offers to us. And so we're just going to, chapter 8, we're, just, we're going to roll through chapter 8. And, and I'm going to walk you through it and let you see the good news of Jesus Christ. So we start in verse 1, chapter 8. It says, therefore, there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And see, see, this is the good news of Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, as a believer in Christ Jesus, having received the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, you are fully and totally acquitted before God. You have received a complete pardon. There is no penalty to serve. There is no punishment to endure. There is no price to be paid. You have been completely acquitted before God. Christ stood before the Father. And as he stood there, he bore every sin you and I have ever committed. And every sin you and I would ever commit. And God the Father looked at God the Son as he bore our sins and said, You are guilty and you deserve death. So God hung him on a cross and he died in our place. So now God looked at us and says, You have never sinned. I see you as if you are perfect. You will never stand in judgment before God. You will never stand in judgment before God. You will never stand in judgment before God. That's the best news you could ever hear on any occasion. In Christ, you have been approved by God. You have been given a right standing before God. You are fully acceptable to the Father. And that is good, good news. Okay, you can get excited now. Down in verse 9 it reads, You, however, are not in the flesh... But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And see, the good news for those of us in Christ is we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. He lives in you. He resides in you. He abides with you. He makes his home in you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. Do you know why the Holy Spirit never even takes his eyes off you? You are that significant to him. You are that valuable to him. You mean that much to him. A few years ago, I was in the Galleria in Nashville. Any former Catholics? Okay, Catholics have a theology called purgatory. It's the ladies' department of a shopping center. (laughs) But it was Debbie's birthday, and so I was in the department store there, and I was shopping for Debbie something for her birthday. And I wanted to buy something special, so, um, you know, I'd saved up a little money, and I was taking my time. And anyway, this, this yuppie-looking soccer mom begins screaming, and she's calling out this name, this little girl's name, or it turned out to be a little girl. She's yelling out this name, and she's running around the, 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 the containers of clothing, the, the racks of clothing, and, and she, she's ducking under things and she's looking she and she's yelling i mean she's not worried about her appearance she's not she doesn't care what anybody thinks she's not worried about upsetting anybody you know she is freaking out and, and she gets so, the store employees get to helping her and then store security comes running and i got caught up in it i'm looking for something you know and turned out her little girl had gotten lost separated from her 
And as you can imagine, as a parent, she is beside herself trying to find her child. And fortunately, the store security found the little girl and re- reunited her with the mom. And the mom is just weeping and, you know, and just, she just panicked. She's a terrible pain. You know, God would do the same for you. God, would, God, God cares for you as much as that mom cares for that child. Jared, when, when my youngest son was eight or nine, we were in Walmart. We got separated. So I began to hide. <laughs> See, not all parents are the same. Jared outsmarted me. He went up to customer service and had him page me. <laughs> I was hoping he'd be here today so I could tell that story so he could, he could tell you it really happened. Ephesians tells us that not only are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day he takes us to our eternal home in heaven. To be sealed by the Holy Spirit is to have him stamp his name on you. I used to misinterpret that verse. For for years and years, I thought to be sealed by the Holy Spirit was like somebody took a big uh, piece of saran wrap and just wrapped you up really tight and sealed you, you know, just sealed in the juices, you know. But that's not what it means. To seal something is to stamp, is to put a seal on it, to put a name on it, to stamp your name on it. God has taken his name and stamped his name on you. You are his. He has claimed you and he has He is proud to claim you. You're his child, and he's grateful that you are his child. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul keeps going. We've got a long way to go. Verse 16, chapter 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and we are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And see, the good news that we celebrate today is that those of us who are in Christ are now fully and completely a child of God with all the privileges that go along with being a child of God. You have been adopted fully into God's family. You have a place at his table. The servants may be eating in the kitchen But you get to eat beside the Father. And being his child, you have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. And listen, it's not some piddly inheritance that doesn't measure up. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. Now, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this because what Paul is saying in this verse is that what God the Father has in store to pass down to the one and only, he's also going to give to me and you. Do you understand that when Christ stands before the Father to receive his internal inheritance, you and I are going to be standing right beside him and we're going to receive just as much. Again, I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I think, I didn't earn that. I've done nothing to deserve that. Why would God give me such an inheritance? Jesus deserves it, but I don't. But that tells you how great God's grace is because he's going to hand me what Christ has earned that I haven't. That's really, really, really good news. 
Paul keeps going down in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, see, not only are you sealed, and not only will you receive an inheritance, but you are prayed for. And listen, it's not your pastor praying for you. It's so much better. It's not your Sunday school teacher praying for you. It's so much better. It's not your deacon praying for you. It's so much better. It's the Holy Spirit praying for you. The third part of the Trinity is in communion with God the Father. And he's in communion with God the Son. And what they're talking about is you. Have you ever thought about your name is ringing out through the hollowed halls of heaven? And if it's not enough that the Holy Spirit is... And, and well, let me back up. The Holy Spirit is praying for you and he is, so, he is so caught up in it. And he is so genuinely fervent about it that there's not even words to say. He's just making groanings to the Father. And the Father understands what those groanings mean. He cares so much about you he can't even put it into words. And not only is the Holy Spirit praying for you, but if I can step out of Romans for a minute, in the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says that God the Son is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and He is making intercession for you. So not only is the Holy Spirit praying for you, but the Son is praying for you. Now that's a lot of praying, I think. And to me, that's pretty good news. Listen, many of us have been praying this week for, for, for all kinds of people who are going through a whole lot of stuff. Uh, Charlene Woodruff it just pops in my mind because she texted me right before I stepped up here to tell me how good her mom is doing. When, when Russell and Charlene left here uh, last week, uh, the, the, it, it just was not expected that her mom would survive. And miraculously, she is going home tomorrow. And, and so Charlene was thanking me and, and, and us for all the prayers that we've been praying. And, and, and I'm grateful to do it. I'm honored to do it. And Charlene, is, you know, she's just telling me, I'm so thankful to have a pastor that prays for me. I'm honored to do it. I, I am glad to do it. But you think about it. There was somebody a whole lot better than the preacher praying for Charlene's mama. <laughs> that, that's just really, really, you know, in my book, that's just really, really good news. Now, Paul keeps going. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, you know what that is saying? That's a, that's a lot of theology there. And, and, and let me just tell you what it means. It means God planned for you. If you want to know what that means, it means God planned for you. God anticipated you. God prepared for you. God had a thought in mind for you. God had a purpose for you. God planned for you. That's, that's what it says. See, based on his foreknowledge, and, and when the Bible talks about knowledge, it doesn't talk about, it's not talking about um, knowing something mentally. When scripture talks about knowledge, it talks about knowing somebody experientially. 
So what it's saying is, it's based on God's experiences of you. Because see, God's not limited in time. You and I are limited in time. We have a past, we have a present, we have a future. God only has a present. I mean, I don't understand that. You, you, you know, I don't understand that. But God only has a present. So God is experiencing us in the future, in our future, but it's his present. You get it, all right? So based on his foreknowledge of us, he determined ahead of time that once we repented of our sins and received his free gift to salvation, he would begin a good work in us, and this good work in us would transform us into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. I hear these preachers on TV talking about, you know, receive your destiny. Can I tell you what your destiny is? To look just, to look, think, and act just like Jesus. That's your destiny. You know, I don't need to get on my soapbox with the TV preachers, but anyway. God has begun a good work in you, and he is transforming you to the perfect image of Christ. He's going to conform you to the image of his son. He's going to make you just like Jesus. And see, once he determined that he was going to conform your character into the the mirror image of the one and only, then he summoned you into his service. And to enable you to serve him most effectively, he has gifted you. With physical gifts and spiritual gifts. And he has placed you in a local church where he can use you to bless other people and, and to make an eternally significant difference in someone's life. And as if that wasn't good enough, he has also justified you. Now, we are still in earthly bodies, and these earthly bodies are stained with sin. But one day, we will be freed from these bodies. Until that point, God still chooses to see us as if we are perfect. He has chosen to justify us. He sees us as righteous. He sees us as holy. He sees us as perfect. Now, it's not enough For him to simply justify us, he goes a step further and he glorifies us. In his mind, we are already glorified. One of these days, we will leave this earth and we will be freed from these human earthly bodies. Paul calls it a body of sin and death. We will be freed from these bodies and we will receive a new uh, perfect heavenly body. And in that perfectly heavenly body, there is no uh, ounce of sin. There's no stain of sin. There's no scar of sin. There's no desire for sin. It's a perfect body. It's a body that can actually enter into the presence of God the Father and not be consumed by the magnitude of his glory. But in that glorified body, we will be perfect. Now, here's the thing. God has already chosen to glorify us. So in his mind, it's already happened. Now, I did my little Greek homework. And the verb that Paul uses here is an aorist tense verb. Now, an aorist tense verb has a past. It's, a, it's like a past tense in that it's something that's already occurred. But it's unlike a past tense because it's something that has ongoing ramifications. So in other words, God has already chosen to glorify you. It's something he has already done. The ramifications are still being worked out. But in God's mind, it's already complete. It's not something he's considering. It's not something he's debating. He's not something that he might possibly do. It's already done. It's in the bank. You can write a check off of it. It's done. You have been glorified 
And that's really, really good news. Now, Paul gets so excited here. Some like, like some of you guys are right now. That he rattles off two rhetorical questions. And this is where we're going. See, all that was introduction. We just now got to the sermon. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to all these great things? This is such good news. I don't know what to say here. Wow just doesn't seem to cut it. Paul is probably the most brilliant mind Christianity has ever has. C.S. Lewis may be close. But even here, Paul doesn't know what to say. He is lost for words. He is speechless because the good news that he has just written is so good, he doesn't know what to say about it. Imagine a preacher speechless. So what shall we say about these things? Well, here's the only thing Paul knows to say. If God is for us, then who or what can be against us? Now, the preposition if there is a word that implies an assumption for the sake of an argument. So Paul is not postulating the possibility that God might be for us. Paul is stating that God is for us. And since God is for us, who or what can be against us? And even if they line up against us, who cares? Because the big bully on the block has got our back. God is for you. He really is for you. You really matter that much to him. The transcendent, omnipotent, omnipresent creator of everything in this universe is for you. Our God is rooting for you. It's like an earthly dad cheering on his child. You parents have been to the ball field and you've cheered on your child. You were for them. Or you went to the band hall and you sat through the recital and you cheered on your child. You were for them. Or you went to a PTA meeting and you oohed and awed over their schoolwork because you were for them. You swelled with pride. A twinkle came to your eye. A smile came to your face because you were for them. Your heavenly father is for you and just so much more. Your God is for you. When my boys were small, um, I served a church where um, basically the staff just had to work around the clock. And when Jordan was in the fourth grade, he played football. And I got to see two of his nine football games. And I promised if I could ever do anything about that, I would. And so right after that, we moved to Tennessee. And I don't know that I ever missed, but I missed one game uh, from the time he was in the fifth grade till he finished high school. I missed one game. I was, I was, it didn't matter what I had to do. I was going to move it. I was going to be there for my kids. I was not going to work through my life for my kids. I was for them. Now, there were times Jordan wished I wasn't there. <laughs> there was a day he was playing football and... We were somewhere up in north central Tennessee and Jordan was a senior and 
He was the middle linebacker, and he was the leading tackler on the football team, and he was just wallowing in the dirt. He, wouldn't, he wasn't trying. He wasn't. He just was wallowing. There's just no way to put it. He was wallowing in the dirt. And by halftime, I was so frustrated. I, I told Debbie, let's go home. She goes, no, we can't leave. I said, no, let's go home. I don't want to watch anymore. No, we can't leave. So I sat there. So when he came out for the second half, Jordan was the kicker. And so he came over to the bench to get the tee so he could kick off for the start of the second half. And I was close enough to yell at him. He wished I wasn't there. See, again, not all parents are perfect. But your father in heaven, who is perfect, is for you. He is rooting for you. He is cheering for you. He is behind you all the way. All right, let's look at verse 32 and we'll finish. He who did not spare the one and only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Your, your, your heavenly father is so for you that there are no words sufficient to describe it. Our, our heavenly father took the one and only and gave him up for each of us. He is so for you, he will not in any way withhold any good thing that you need. Your God is for you. Nothing will stop him from being for you. Nothing will separate him from you so that he is not able to be for you. And listen, he is not for you because you're great. He is for you because he is great. He's not for you because you're so successful. He is for you because he is so perfect. My Jordan was a great football player. And I enjoyed watching him play football. And in football games, I would sit up in the stands and just beam with pride. Well, Jordan played basketball. and He wasn't so good at basketball. But I still sat in the stands and beamed with pride, not because he played so well. Jordan shot a free throw one day and caught his own rebound because it hit the backboard so hard it came all the way back to him. <laughs> now, don't tell him I said that. But it really did. It really happened. It hit the backboard so hard it rattled. And it all the way back to him. He looks like, what do I do now? I've never had a second opportunity before. But it didn't matter how badly he played. He was still mine. I stood in the stands and yelled and cheered and screamed and hollered and applauded because he was mine. And your God is for you, not because you're so wonderful. You are, but, but that's not his motivation. His motivation is he is so good. He's going to cheer for us regardless of how badly we play. Our God is for us. And because... His motivation is based on his character. His character is perfect. A perfect character never changes. He's never going to stop being for you. Do you understand that? I mean, you can, 
You can strike out. He's still going to be for you. You can blow the layup. He's still going to be for you. You can misplay the note. He is still going to be for you. Because being for you is not based on the quality of your performance. It's based on the quality of his character. And his character can't get better. Because he's absolutely perfect. And because he's perfect, he doesn't change. Because he doesn't change, he will always be for you. That's great news. And I believe that's truth we can hope in. And that's truth we can take joy in. And that's truth that brings freedom to our lives. And truth that brings peace to our lives. Our God is for us. We simply have to believe it and live it out. And if you keep going in Romans, Paul begins to ask a series of questions. What can separate us from the love of God? Can any of these things separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. Because the love of God, again, is based on his character and not your performance. It's not about you. It's all about him. God is for you. And say, here's why this is all matters. Here's where we're getting this. I deal with people constantly, almost daily, who experience a traumatic event in their life. Something goes wrong. And their mind quickly assumes God is no longer for them or this wouldn't happen to them. Brother Greg, how can, how can God love me and let this happen? And see, here, here's, what, here's what happens in our human minds. We take God... And we take the events of life and we see them as one thing. And they're not. Life and God are two different things. And when you suffer bad things in this life, it's because life is bad. It's not because God is bad. Your God is good. Your God is perfect. Your God is always good and he is always perfect. And your God is for you. He is always for you. When life is bad, your good God is still for you. When life is tragic, your good God is still for you. When things don't work out the way you want, your good God is still for you. You may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but your God will go with you because he is still for you. And that's pretty good news.